Hey everyone, welcome to today's episode with Cade Metz. Cade's been a technology reporter for over 30 years and he's currently at the New York Times. He released a fantastic book last year on the history and the story of AI and how it came to be. I hope you enjoy our chat. If you do, please hit subscribe. It really helps the channel if you could do that. And thank you for watching. So okay, you spent the first few years of your career actually as a playwright before eventually switching over to tech journalism. You know, what inspired that switch? Well, it wasn't necessarily a switch. You know, I've always had the kind of this dual interest, a dual background. Uh, I was an English major in college. My senior thesis was a novella, um, but my father was an engineer. And uh, during college, I had... Um, an, an internship at IBM. Uh, he was a career IBMer, my father a programmer, and um, and through him, uh, I had a scholarship. Um, and part of the scholarship uh, was uh, uh, was a summer internship as a programmer. Um, and in college, I you know I took programming courses as well, um, and and math and science courses. So I always had this, kind of this dual interest. And I had a particular interest in, in writing about engineers. I felt like engineers and researchers were, were underrepresented, even in tech journalism. You know, tech, tech stories um, in the mainstream press are typically about the entrepreneurs, right? The people building the companies as opposed to people really building the technology. And I always felt like that was unexplored territory or underrepresented territory. So I always had an interest in, in writing about not just the technology, but the people really building the technology. First thing that comes to mind then is like Steve Wozniak in the whole kind of Apple story. You must have, you must have been thinking about him a bit then as opposed to, you know, the, the guy who was really talked about, which was Steve Jobs. Yeah, that's, that, that's a good, good example. Um, you know, I always felt like Engineers um, were as interesting as anybody else, right? The the uh, sort of the trope, the assumption is that engineers are somehow boring and uninteresting. But I think the opposite is true. My father, like I said, was a was an engineer and a career IBMer, and he he had these amazing stories about the people that he worked with. He worked on, among other things the UPC project at IBM. So the universal product code, the barcode uh, that is now on all our groceries, right? This is how we, how we buy our groceries. He worked on that original project. He helped test the system. And he had these incredible stories, um, not only about the people who, who built the system and, and first dreamed it up, a guy named Joe Woodland, um, you know, first envisioned this technology when he was on the beach back in the 50s. Um, but also about how the technology affected people as it was pushed out into the world. Um, you know, in the early 70s, as they began testing and deploying the system, there were literally protests um, uh, against IBM and, and, and this system. People who, who saw it as the sign of the beast from revelations come to life. You know, why would you push this out into the world? And those types of stories, they were they were entertaining, they were amusing, but they also, um, you know, shone a light on the way technology um, uh, 
can 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 affect people and 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 hit hit certain parts of their um, of their psyche in ways you might not expect. Um, and I've always been interested in exploring those types of things. Speaking of IBM, one thing I wanted to ask you was about something I saw online, which said that you you reported on and you were reporting during the kind of nineteen ninety seven match between IBM's Deep Blue and Gary Kasparov. Can you tell me a little bit about that time and and you know, the level of excitement and, and what it felt like to be in, you know reporting on that? Right, I was I was in New York at the time, and um, that event um, uh, was put together uh, in the city. It was. It was a remarkable event, um, in part because of the attention that was on it, in part because of the way it played out and how surprised Kasparov was um, by by the machine that that he was playing. Right, um, th- that's what um, that's what was most interesting is that it, it kind of caught him, um, let alone everyone else. Um, by surprise. Um, and it was interesting years later when I covered the Go match um, between AlphaGo, the system built by DeepMind, the, the AI lab in London that was had been purchased by Google, and Lee Seidel, uh, who's one of the best Go players of the, of the last decade. Um, that, that played out in a similar way, but just on, a, on an even, even larger scale. Um, it was, it was, um, you know, it, it helped that I was able to, you know, contrast and compare that with what had happened, uh, years earlier in New York with, with Deep Blue and, uh, Gary Kasparov. I know the level of access you had at the, um, at the AlphaGo match where, you, you know, you were at the venue, like, were you, were you at the venue during the, the IBM match against Kasparov or were you kind of reporting on the news you heard? Like, where were you exactly? I was at the venue uh, as well. I was in a hotel on on the west side of Manhattan, and um, um, it was you know it, I remember you had sort of stadium seating um, for you know a large um, um, you know a large TV or movie screen uh, that would show the match, and you had commentators, chess experts, who provided commentary. Um, in real time, as if it was uh, a sporting event. Um, but um, no, I was there for every match um, um, back then, and uh, um, and again, it was nice to compare and contrast that with what happened years later in Seoul with uh, AlphaGo and Lee Seidel. Yeah, so we'll come on to AlphaGo um, in a minute. I've got a few questions about that, but um, you're at the New York Times at the moment. After staying with you know PC Magazine for for a number of years, what what were some kind of highlights during the kind of fifteen or so years you were there? Did any specific inventions come out, or were there any kind of moments that that made you that you kind of stand out as being the most exciting during your career? Important. Well, I mean, I think that the Kasparov match match was certainly um, you know one of those one of those moments. Um, um, you know. Uh, you know, beyond that, um, you know, n- nothing really, really compared to what would happen, um, you know, in later years, you know, with the type of technology we're going to talk about here, meaning AI technology. 
um, you know, for nothing happened for years and years, you know, um, during, you know, during that period, you know, kind of sort of the late 90s, early 2000s, um, you know, it was what, you know, people often called an AI winter, right? There wasn't uh, the interest or the funding going into the field that you would see in later years. Um, the the field really, really changed um, in, um, you know, in the late 2000s, early 2010s, right? There was a, there was an inflection point uh, where the field really took off in some unexpected ways. Um, and that's what is what has really been interesting. I'm not sure where you were exactly at the time, but I, I know after PC Magazine, you, you worked at the Register for a few years. I'm just thinking of one one event, like the iPhone launch in 2007. Was that ex, was that an interesting moment? Where were you Where were you working then? Just to kind of you know think about another event outside of the AI space. Sure. Um, you know, I, I was at PC Magazine at the time. I was at the event where where Steve Jobs um, unveiled it. Um, you know, um, these are these are carefully designed and orchestrated press events. Um, you know, it's, um, it's almost like a concert, right? It's at this place called the, the you know, a, a rock concert, this place called the Mar- Marconi Center in, in, in San Francisco. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're carefully chosen, um, you know, songs playing as everyone is sort of gathering and waiting for Steve Jobs to um, to come on stage, and um, you know, and and his speech, um, you know, while unforgettable, right? Um, you know, you you in hindsight, you realize just how carefully, you know, he's trying to to pull the strings, right? He comes out and. And he says, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna unveil three of three, three devices today, right? One's a phone, um, you know, one's a camera, and one's an internet connection device, right? And then the big reveal is it's all one device, right? It's all, you know, and uh, all the Apple faithful are are are, are there, um, you know, th- those those are events are interesting as sort of um, as." you know, as a window into the way, you know, Steve Jobs um, would operate and kind of pull the strings um, on the general public and, and the Apple faithful. Um, but it's far less interesting to me than than an event um, like the Go match in Korea, um, because something is playing out there in real time um, where no one quite knows what's going to happen. Um, and, um and you 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 see the technology affect people in, in unexpected ways. That's far more interesting to me. So after you're at the Register, you moved to Wired magazine. Um, yeah, and good to talk about AlphaGo now because I think you're at Wired when when the AlphaGo challenge match happened. And this is how I first kind of heard of you. I saw you on the the documentary, this brilliant documentary. I recommend everyone watches. Um, you know, produced by DeepMind on on the AlphaGo match. Um, so yeah, just to say a little bit more about it, I know you said a bit already, but can you just talk a bit more about what that experience was like, what your, your week or so there was like and how it felt, the excitement? What I often tell people is that even though I was just an observer, 
to this uh, to this match, right? I was not a participant. I was an observer. It was one of the most amazing weeks of, of my life. Um, the part of it was that the the entire country, meaning Korea, South Korea, was focused um, on this match. You would walk into the, out into the streets, and people would be you know gathered you know outside the Four Seasons Hotel watching these sort of giant. Um, television screens um, uh, showing the match. Uh, it was on the front page of every paper every day. And as the match um, would sway back and forth, um, you know, towards AlphaGo or back towards Lisito, you could kind of feel the whole country sway in the same way. When um, uh, certainly when when Lisito lost the second match, you know, you could feel this collective sadness across the country, right? He was a, a, a national hero. And, um, in a, and, and it wasn't just about, you know, him losing, but I think we all sort of feel this pang when, when that sort of thing happens, you know, you relate to him because he's human, right? And, um, and when he is beat by this machine, we all feel that sort of sadness. Um, that was real and it was palpable. And then at the same time, when he came back and won game four, um, that sort of elation um, we all could relate to. And that was an elation that, that really reverberated across the whole country. Um, being there um, was an amazing, amazing thing. And it was, it was something that that maybe people back in the UK or, or back in the US um, didn't feel as much, right? Go is a national game in places like Korea and China and Japan in, way, in a way it isn't um, in the UK or in, in the US. Um, so you, you really felt an importance um, being there in the country as that was playing out. As you say, it was one of the most, you know, kind of interesting, exciting weeks of your life. Did that take you by surprise a lot? Or did you go there thinking something, you know, very interesting is going to happen here? Well, you know, I, I did make an effort to go, right? I, I knew I knew that that something was going to happen. It was going to make a good story. Um, I, I, um, I remember pitching to my editor the story and, and him saying, well, most people assume that... Uh, that Lee Seidel is going to win, right? And I said, yes, but I think what you're going to see is that the machine is going to win this match. I think what people, um, you know, go experts are not taking into account is that this this system that DeepMind is building um, has continued to be improved over the months since it last played a match, right? It had It had beaten... Um, the European Go champion behind closed doors previously. Um, and from those matches, you could sort of, you know, ascertain the level that this system had, had achieved. What people were not taking into account is that, the, you know, part of the system literally learns from, uh, from repeated play. Um, and that sort of learning aspect of the system um, was what, you know, a lot of the experts were were not um, were not acknowledging as they tried to predict what would happen in Korea. Um, I was confident that, that the machine was going 
to win. Um, and, um, you know, I didn't know it was going to win, but um, that's what I was expecting. And, um, you know, it played out in ways certainly that I didn't expect. Like I didn't expect the machine to be that dominant. Um, and, you know, I didn't expect that twist at, at the end when, when Lee Seidel, you know, took game four. Um, I remember, you know, after game three, when effectively, you know, the machine had won the match, right? It won three out of three out of, you know, um, uh, five games. And my wife said, well, are you coming home now? And I said, no, I'm going to stay and see how this plays out. And, you know, and luckily I did, I did stay because, um, that was one of the most interesting moments uh, when when Lee Sido came back and and won the fourth game. Yeah, there is a lovely moment in the documentary where you, I think you say you're nearly about to tear up, recalling the moment you know where Lee comes back and wins. Um, as you said, there's this shared, there was a shared interest at one point, you know, for him. To, I guess you wanted him to at least get one match, even if you know, because that made all the difference, as a, you know, for making him feel a bit better and stuff. I think he said, just winning one match was enough. Or something, um, it kind of consoled him a bit. Oh, absolutely right. This isn't, you know, this is about more than just, you know, the statistics of that match, right? It's a, you know, it's about something uh, more human than that, um, more important than that, um, and it's about this larger arc of of, uh, of AI machines uh, and its relationship. Um, to us humans. Are there any kind of interesting behind the scenes stories or insights, you know, conversations you had with either Go experts or, you know, people at DeepMind? Yeah, a lot of this is in in the piece I eventually uh, published at, at Wired and in, in a book, you know, I later wrote about the, the history of, of neural networks, which is a key technology that's used um, in AlphaGo. Um, but, you know, the most amazing moment and the most amazing character, you know, as far as I was concerned, you know, who was involved in that match was a guy named Fan Wei. And he was the European Go champion who had lost the match uh, to AlphaGo uh, behind closed doors. And, you know, he's not a native English speaker, but, you know, I, I ran into him or, or, or talked to him in the wake of AlphaGo, uh, lose uh, AlphaGo winning game two, right? Which was sort of the real, like sort of devastating moment for, for, you know, a lot of people. Um, and, you know, he had this wonderfully poetic way of describing um, the system and the way it played and the beauty, you know, of this, of this system, um, which had, you know, made this sort of this tr transcendent move to effectively win that match. Uh, a move that uh, David Silver, one of the uh, DeepMind engineers, later told me um, was was a move that a human most likely would never have have, have made, right? According to this machine's calculations, uh, which are based on um, real games involving human players, its calculation was that a human. Um, the chances of hum a human making that move, uh, an expert player, were one in 10,000. But based on um, the machines, it, the machine had, uh, based on the games, the machine had effectively played with itself. It decided to make that move anyway. Uh, and the way that 
that Fonway described that move in the moment uh, was was remarkable. He's he's a neat guy who shows up in that documentary you talked about as well, and is one of one of the important characters in that piece. It's a great movie. It's a you know I was surprised at how 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 effective that documentary was. Yeah, it really is a, a beautiful piece. What was it like for watching the documentary back, seeing yourself in it? You know, seeing the images for when you were there. Well, I thought it did a great job of capturing what it was like to be there. Um, you know, from the small mom- moments with people like Fon Wei to the larger scope of things and how this this whole country reacted uh, to the event. Um, it really captured what it was like to be there. Did much change in your perspective of AI technology and, and the future from being that event? I mean, you said that you predicted that the machine would, would most likely win. So after it had finished, had, did you think much differently about the future of AI or had you kind of expected that to happen? And it was obviously an amazing experience, but nothing had, had changed much in your, in your mind. Well, I mean, I think it was an important moment because it, it a game like that is something we can all understand, right? We grow up playing games. And when you have, when you have a moment like that, when a machine can beat one of the world's, you know, top players um, at a game like that, it's a way that everyone can understand how the technology is progressing. And, and because of that phenomenon, that, that aspect of the system that learns from repeated play, you can see this technology um, continuing to advance. Like I said, it's based on a technology called uh, a neural network, which is a mathematical system that literally learns tasks uh, by analyzing data. So that might be analyzing go moves um, from expert players, or it might be, you know, uh, images or sounds, right? A neural network is what allows Siri to understand uh, the words that we say. It analyzes thousands of hours of spoken words and it learns to recognize the words that we speak. Um, you can feed it, feed a neural network thousands of, of cat photos and it can learn to identify the patterns um, that allow it to identify a cat. Um, and you could see a path where this technology could continue to improve certain um, certain computer skills, right? So image recognition, speech recognition, translation, um, that was the next area uh, where this technology really, really improved things. And, and we continue to see this, this basic technology improve what scientists call natural language understanding, right? The ability to understand the languages that you and I and others on earth speak um, and, and responding to that. So you're seeing systems now that use the same fundamental technology um, to apply, um, uh, you know, apply that phenomenon to all sorts of other natural language skills, whether it's you know question and answer or 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 dialogue, right? Um, you know we're seeing increasingly you know systems that 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 can uh, you know 
move towards carrying on a conversation. We're not there yet, but you could, at the time, you could see the progress in these, these areas continuing. Uh, and, you know, it's something as I moved to the Times that I pitched to my editors, right, that this, this idea would continue to show progress in the years to come. Since that, since that AlphaGo Challenge match, you know, we've had some interesting you know, things happen um, with all the technologies you've just discussed. You know, we had DeepMind with AlphaFold and OpenAI you know, with a few things, uh, GPT-3 and DALI-2. Can you, can you envision and picture what you think may be maybe the next, the next moment that's as exciting as, you know, for example, the, the AlphaGo match? Is there anything that you think may kind of stand out as, a, as the next big milestone that you're excited to see? Well, I think, you know, at, at this point, we need to look beyond the games and look beyond the the interesting demos towards where this might really change things uh, in real ways. Um, Alpha Fold is a good example, right? That that technology, again, based on a neural network, can fundamentally, you know, change biological research. It, um, you know, it may help scientists, for instance, um, when, uh, when it comes to drug discovery, right? Uh, developing new vaccines and medicines. Um, and, um, you know, when you think about what OpenAI has done with these, what they call large language models, so, you know, neural networks that can understand language in the way that I described earlier, we need to, you know, really think about where that can be of use. And we're starting to see it be of use in, in certain ways. Like that, that sort of technology has now been deployed with um, uh, software developer, right? It can, it can in a way generate pieces of software code um, that developers that can then make use of, right? Um, it's, it's not perfect, right? It can't, you know, generate um, uh, software code to the point where it can replace all coders, but it can help uh, software developers do their job, generate snippets of code that they can then use and shape and insert in, into their projects. And, and that's where it's starting to be useful. Uh, the next area on the horizon are what, what uh, researchers call multimodal systems. So it's basically the same sort of um, uh, model, these sort of large language models also applied to images. So you have this system produced uh, by OpenAI, for instance, called DALI. And what you can do is you can, you can ask it to give you a photograph, um, a, an image. You can describe the image you want. You can say, I want an image of two cats playing chess. And it will generate uh, that image with photorealistic quality. It's a remarkable system um, uh, in a lot of ways, surprising, entertaining. So the, then the question becomes, well, how is this going to impact our world in, in real ways? And, um, you know, that, that, that is, is sort of an, an open question. But, you know, much as these large language models can help developers uh, build software code, Something like DALI can help graphic designers um, as they're building images, right? You can 
you can have the system generate an image that you can then tweak and modify and insert into the into the work you're doing. That's not the sort of you know super intelligent system that a lot of AI researchers have long dreamed of and long claimed was on the horizon. These are systems that are best used in tandem with humans. Um, but that's the sort of thing that, that I've been looking at and, and thinking about. That's interesting. Um, so we get to move on now to talk about um, your, the books that you released in the last year, which I've read and is really brilliant, really in, interesting, uh, titled Genius Makers, the Mavericks who brought AI to Google, Facebook and the world. So I mean, first of all, yeah, why did you decide to, to write this book on, on this topic? Well, I decided to write it after coming back from Korea in that Go match. Uh, that, um, that event where you could see how the technology um, was affecting people um, in real time. And, and you could see the interesting characters uh, behind the technology. Demis Sasabas, the uh, CEO and founder of, of DeepMind, being one prime example. Uh, that's when I resolved to write the book. Um, but as I started to pull together a pitch uh, to make to publishers, uh, I became even more interested with a guy named Jeff Hinton, who, um, who had worked on that idea, the idea of a neural network, uh, since the early 70s. He embraced this idea at a moment when, when most people thought it would never work. Um, and as I talked to him more um, and, and got to know him, uh, the book and its focus shifted a lot. He became the central character, like the one, the one human thread you know, through the history of this idea, the idea of a neural network. Um, and uh, and that, uh, that really became uh, the heart of, heart of the book, right? Any good book, any good story, uh, is about people, um, and he became the central person in in this book. I'm mean, just a bit intrigued about the the process of writing that book. So, I mean, how much of the the, the stories in the book were were kind of t- did you experience firsthand? Were you, you know, did you um did you speak much to these main characters in the book and uh, about these stories and catch it from them, or was it stuff you'd found from research? I mean, how, how did you go about finding out all the content in, in the book? It's based on on dozens and dozens and dozens of interviews. Um, almost everyone who is who is mentioned in the book, um, I spoke to. You know, I mean, there are a few exceptions, um, but I spoke to almost everyone. Um, uh, and uh, and you know, a lot of those stories um, were revealed for the first time, you know, in the book uh, or through my own reporting. Um, you know, a couple of like the big moments, um, you know, I had written about before, whether it's the Go Match or um, or you know, a couple of other events. Um, but most of that is is original research. You know, I do go back in time, right? This is an old idea, the idea of a neural network. It was first proposed um, in the 50s. And so there's some historical research there. Another interesting character is a guy named Frank Rosenblatt, uh, who was a psychologist uh, in the 1950s and um, uh, and someone who really championed this idea then. 
he died um, in 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 the early seventies. Um, so there's you know there's some historical research uh, involved, um, uh, but a lot of that also is firsthand, right? Through people like Jeff Hinton, who have worked in this area uh, since the seventies. People like Jan Lacoon, uh, who is now the head of um, head of research at Meta, formerly Facebook. Uh, and other people who have who have long worked on this idea. You must have learned a, a you know a huge amount about AI whilst writing the book. Were there were there any or were there many big questions or ideas that you you've noticed you've changed your mind on that you wouldn't have you know thought previously before you before you wrote the book and, and learned all that you did. Well, I mean, I think one thing that's that has been interesting and I continue to think about is, and I don't think this is widely understood among the general public, um, you know, AI is, is an aspirational field, right? In the 1950s, uh, when that term was coined, artificial intelligence, it was coined by this guy named John McCarthy, who was a Dartmouth College professor. He had uh, he pulled together this summer conference uh, at Dartmouth in 1956 and, um, you know, brought together like-minded people who were interested in this new field. And he decided to call it artificial intelligence. And, and these academics were sure that it wouldn't take long for them to create machines uh, that could do what the human brain could do. Uh, you know, some predicted that within 10 years, you would have a system that could beat the, you know, the world's best players at chess um, or, um, you know, that could that could develop its own um, uh, mathematical theorem. Well, you know, that didn't happen. Um, you know, the the chess piece, you know, didn't happen until um, until 1997, uh, as we discussed, uh, you know. Artificial intelligence from the beginning, it was a misnomer, right? They were building technology that was nowhere close to intelligent, uh, but they were sure that they could do this. Um, and that's that's a theme throughout the history of AI that you continue to see, right? It's very much an, an aspirational field. And I, I think that that's something that people outside of the field don't quite understand. Is that the kind of main reason you're so interested in AI, that it's just this really aspirational field that, you know, trying to solve such difficult issues? Is, it, is that the reason you're, you're particularly interested in it, as opposed to, you know, all the other areas of, of technology? I think that that's part of it. But part of what I want to do with the book or with my reporting at the Times is, is give people a realistic view of this, right? Um, because it's so aspirational, uh, people often people in the field uh, often talk about the technology um, in ways that exaggerate uh, its powers. And I think part of my role is to give people a real view of what's going on here and show them exactly what the technology can do and what it can't and explain this aspirational nature and help them understand um, that what some people are saying isn't necessarily true. One thing I've, I've seen you say is that a lot of the visionaries in the field, they continued, you know, going going with this when everyone else didn't believe in them. 
Um, you know, they believed in AI. Everyone thought they were they were crazy, but they continued. You've spoke to you know some of these people, maybe all of these all these people that I'm thinking of. What do you think it is about them that you think enabled them to to have this belief and and to pursue it in the in the face of doubt? I admire that quality in in anyone, right? Um, having a firm belief in in what you're doing and sticking with it. Um, even in the face of doubts from others, right? That's uh, that's an admirable quality, and it's a quality that's at the heart of so many great stories. Um, and uh, it's a quality you see, you know, in in Jeff Hinton uh, in particular. Um, you know, he he believes very strongly what he believes, and and he's willing to pursue that. At the same time, you know, he, unlike maybe some others, you know, is He's grounded in a way, and he sees a you know the limits of uh, you know of of the current technology, and, um, and and he's willing to talk about um, you know the limits. Um, but you know he is also very very firm in, in his beliefs, and he's willing to uh, willing to talk about that. Um, it's an it's an admirable quality, and it's and it's absolutely something that attracted me as I was putting this book together. So just moving on to some final questions, I kind of want to return to like your career a bit more broadly, a bit more general. I mean, you've been a tech journalist for, for a number of years. What, what do you enjoy about the work that you do? Really, it's, it's about talking to people, right? That's the most interesting thing. And um, that, that's really how the job works. You, you, you talk to one person and you get to the end of a good conversation and you say, who else should I talk to? Right. And they, they recommend a few people. You talk to them, um, and 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 the cycle continues. Um, that's really what's most interesting is um, is talking to and getting to know and getting to understand um, new people, um, and then helping others do the same. Right, taking what you have learned, um, taking these conversations you've had, and turning them into a, a story or a book um, that others can appreciate. It feels like with the, all the you know technology work and reporting that you do, there are always technology stories that are kind of deeply intertwined with people, as opposed to just technology on its own. I guess that's the that's the thing that you find most interesting. Well, absolutely. Um, I, I think that you know the technology itself is certainly interesting, but it's even more interesting when you think about how how this affects us all. Um, and uh, so you know, again, I think that. You know, not all you know technology writing does this, but it should, right? It, you know, it should look at the intersection of technology and people and society. Uh, that that is where the technology becomes most important. Are there any aspects of being a journalist that you know, stand out as being particularly difficult or the the most challenging part of the job? Well, I mean, you know that that piece. I mean, these are complicated issues complicated in a lot of ways right technically complicated the the ramifications of the technology are complicated and you you have to take in all that complication and then find a way to distill it um into something that that anyone and everyone can understand um that's always hard um and and you have to you have to continue to struggle to do that um because, you know, again, ultimately it's about, you know, imparting this knowledge to anyone. 
Um, so it's, it's a hard thing to do, to distill that down into its essence, um, into something that anyone can grasp and enjoy. Um, but that's, that's the job. I think you certainly did that in, in the book, though, that's for sure. Um, and I've seen you make the point a few times as well that you, one thing you really try and do is re- remain objective in your reporting and you know, not to take sides and, and give your opinion too much. Is that difficult or is this the kind of way you enjoy working? Do you ever wish you could give a bit more of your, your opinion and your, on your take on things? Or I mean, it's the way that my mind works um, and it's the way... I really want to approach things is one of the reasons I'm at the times uh, because, you know, the way I work aligns with, with the organization. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that that that's really what's most effective. And I think that that's one of the reasons the book is effective because it, you know, it doesn't take any one side. It looks at the land, the entire landscape and tries to get everyone all the information that they need to understand what is truly going on and they can make their own decisions. After spending so many years reporting and thinking and writing about technology, how do you feel about the, the future and where we're headed? Well, uh, there, there are some dark parts to our future. I'll, I'll tell you that. And, and a lot of them relate to, to AI. You know, we haven't talked much about this, but you know, these, these systems, these large language models, or these multimodal systems we talked about, right? They're they're essentially generating fake content, right? You know, they're generating their own images, they're generating um, text, they're generating tweets, blog posts. We're we're going to reach a point where it's going to be hard to tell whether text or images or sounds were created by a human or they were or they were created by a machine. We are going to have to have a skepticism about everything that we see and hear online. And I wonder if we're, as humans, capable of that sort of skepticism. Uh, I think it's going to be a real shift. Do you have any plans for the, the future with your, with your work? Any, anything exciting coming up? Well, um, you know, I'm going to continue to cover this, at this, this area at the Times and all sorts of areas. Uh, you know, I'm what they call the emerging technologies reporter. So any technology that is beginning to come to the fore, um, you know, is potential, it's a potential subject for, um, for, for my stories and, uh, and yeah, maybe another book at some point, nothing, nothing imminent yet, but uh, I'd like to do another. I would hate to stop at one. Any thoughts on, on what the, the second book may, may be about? Um, not sure yet, but it might be nice to, to get outside the AI field and do something entirely different. That's great. We'll look forward to it. Okay, thanks so much for speaking. It was great to hear a bit about your story, but also talk about some, some AI and, and tech stuff. Appreciate your time. Enjoyed it. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you enjoyed the Human Podcast, please consider subscribing. I hope to see you soon.